Good evening, and welcome to the Rothko Chapel for the fourth and final lecture in the series, Beyond the Rhetoric, Civil Rights and Our Shared Responsibility. I'm Ashley Klimmer, Director of Programs and Community Engagement, and on behalf of our Executive Director and Board of Directors, I would like to thank you for joining us for tonight's conversation, Exploring Immigrants' Rights. In conjunction with the chapel's 50th anniversary and commitment to furthering social justice nationally and internationally, we are examining different understandings of and approaches to advancing human rights and civil liberties in the United States through a lecture series followed by a virtual symposium. The questions that we are exploring include, how have civil rights historically been understood and applied in this country? Who benefits and who has been left out? Which civil rights and liberties are particularly at risk today? Is it time to rethink basic approaches to the concept of rights? How can we become more effective advocates and activists as we work to address injustice and create an equitable society? And how do we sustain our passion for social justice and long-haul activism? Tonight, we explore these broader questions through the lens of immigration. We are honored to have two featured speakers to guide us through this process. I would like to extend a warm welcome to Charles Kamasaki, Senior Cabinet Advisor of Unidos US, and Sister Norma Pimentel, Executive Director of Catholic Charities Rio Grande Valley. I will begin by introducing our moderator, Francis Valdez, who will introduce each of our speakers and then lead us through the remainder of the program. Note that during the lecture, you are invited to email your questions to programs at rothcochapel.org, and Frances will do her best to weave those into the conversation. Additionally, while this program does not include live closed captioning, it will be available in the program recording posted on our website after the event. Frances Valdez is the Executive Director of Houston in Action, a collective impact initiative that believes that by working together to reduce systemic barriers, we can increase civic participation in the greater Houston region. In 2020, Frances engaged Houston in Action to be a leader in the first of its kind 2020 Census Coordination and historic 2020 Election Coordination in Harris County. In 2021, that work continued post-census to include coordinating efforts for equitable COVID vaccination access in Harris County, the creation of unity maps with member organizations to affect redistricting lines, and the implementation and funding of Black, Latinx, and AAPI grassroots organizing cohorts in Houston. Prior to starting Houston in Action, Valdez had a 13-year career as an immigration attorney advocacy and policy advisor, director, and civic engagement coordinator within the immigrants' rights movement. Francis, thank you so much for being with us this evening, and we look forward to the conversation. Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate being with y'all and in community with you, even though it's virtually, and really excited to hear from our amazing speakers. I'm going to start off by introducing Charles Kamasaki, who's a senior cabinet advisor of Unidos US, formerly the National Council of La Raza, NCLR. Previously, the executive vice president of NCLR, Kamasaki for two decades managed the group's research policy analysis 
and advocacy activity. He has authored, co-authored, and supervised the preparation of dozens of policy and research reports, journal articles, and editorials, testified frequently at congressional and administrative hearings, coordinated pro bono litigation and legal analysis, and represented the organization at research and policy conferences and symposia. Hamasaki is also a resident fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, where he conducted research that produced the book, Immigration Reform, The Corpse That Will Not Die, about the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, and its follow-on bill, the Immigration Act of 1990, the last comprehensive immigration reforms enacted into law. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Charles, and I really look forward to your remarks. Thank you so much, Francis, for that kind introduction, and thanks to the Rothko Chapel for this extraordinary invitation. I'm really honored to follow a stellar list of presenters to address uh, the topics of civil rights and our shared responsibility towards them. Uh, my talk tonight is going to address three main themes. First, a discussion of why I prefer to use a civil rights frame rather than an immigrant rights or a human rights frame to discuss immigration policy. Uh, second, why I believe using a civil rights frame, the US immigration policy system represents a classic, if somewhat underappreciated example of systemic racism. And finally, I'll conclude with some thoughts about prospects for immigration reform in the near future. And uh, spoiler alert, they're not great, although not impossible. Returning to my first theme, human rights versus civil rights. Um, really, probably the foundational document for immigrant rights to the extent they exist uh, is the, uh, at least in the modern era, is the UN Declaration, Universal Declaration on Human Rights. Uh, which was issued in 1948, but in many ways is still, as I said, the foundational document uh, for human rights. Article 13 of the Declaration confers on all people the right to leave and the right to return to their country of origin. The next article, Article 14, also confers on everyone the right to be free from persecution. And this uh, article was essentially later codified uh, in international law as the obligation of member states of the United Nations to offer asylum based uh, to people who might fear, uh, who might have a well-founded fear of persecution. Um, while at some basic level, the right to leave a country uh, is meaningless unless some other country or countries uh, is willing to accept them. Notably, nothing in the Declaration eliminates or modifies uh, the rights of sovereign states to decide who enters, how many people enter, or under what conditions they can enter their country. In other words, except for the limited case of asylum, Nothing in the Declaration obligates any member state of the United Nations to accept any minimum level of immigration from abroad. And this isn't particularly surprising. As, as many have observed, immigration policy is kind of a classic example of rights versus rights. 
the right of people to leave and to and to have live in safety uh, versus the rights of countries to control their borders. In addition to that, uh, uh, a classic human rights frame or an immigrants' rights frame almost by definition requires uh, making determinations based on international law. It also traditionally requires uh, taking positions or making pronouncements on foreign policy issues. And as, as someone who's worked in a domestic civil rights organization for decades, um, I really can't claim much expertise on either international law or uh, on foreign policy, which is why tonight I'd like to discuss U.S. immigration policy through a domestic civil rights lens. Um, I think many of us might remember from the history books, or for some of us who lived through the period, that the core civil rights laws that we enacted as a country in the 1960s outlawed two major forms of discrimination. Uh, one, which I think most of us are, are familiar with, is intentional discrimination. You can't be denied a job or housing or education or certain other kinds of services based on race or national origin or a number of other protected statuses. The second type of, of discrimination that was out, and this is what I'll spend most of my time on, uh, is the notion that um, is, is called disparate impact. It's the idea that um, even race-neutral actions can be unlawful when they have a disproportionate or disparate impact on protected groups, unless that action or practice can be justified on, on other grounds. Um, so, for example, demanding that someone have certain physical strength characteristics is not permitted for most office work but it is justifiable for, say, construction jobs. Um, under the same standard, things like literacy tests or poll taxes or grandfather clauses uh, are, are outlawed in the voting rights context, but residency requirements, right, that you live in the jurisdiction in which you're trying to vote, uh, are allowed. Uh, while disparate impact doctrine has been severely eroded by the courts in recent years, it still remains the law of the land. Which brings me to my second theme, uh, which is that U.S. immigration policy represents a classic, if as I noted, largely underappreciated example of systemic racism. Specifically, uh, there are lots of examples in immigration policy uh, where racism exists um, on the part of many actors in the system, and uh, it's often intentional. Uh, and those are indeed serious problems. But in my judgment, the more serious problem is when the system itself is founded on a racist foundation. And the reason I spent some time covering disparate impact doctrine earlier uh, is that systemic racism, which is a term you're he hearing a lot about these days, is in fact disparate impact on steroids. In other words, in my judgment, if every major actor or institution uh, in the immigration policy system acts in a completely neutral or non-discriminatory manner, the system itself, because of the way it's structured, will inevitably produce unequal results that fall most heavily on people of color and I believe most heavily on Latinos. 
Now, I realize that's a strong statement, but I think it's amply supported by the facts. And this evening, I'll talk to you a little bit about some of those facts. And in doing that, I'm mainly going to focus on undocumented immigrants, not because there aren't other examples of systemic racism in the system, uh, but because to me, it's the most obvious example and because it has the most pernicious effects on our society. So here I offer three major points. One, that contrary to most people's beliefs, undocumented immigration has been a long-standing phenomenon in the history of our country. But second, only in recent years has it been punished at all or punished severely. And third, that the reason for the distinction is largely race. Now, many of us have heard the sentiment some of us may have even thought this sentiment. Some brave of us might have even stated, you know, my ancestors, my forebears came to the country the right way, i.e. legally. So what's the problem with why Latino immigrants and others uh, uh, can't do the same? And uh, that assumption is in fact built into the mindset of most Americans. But that assumption is simply incorrect. Think of the great migrations of the late 1800s and early 1900s and answer a simple question. How is it that people fleeing, say, the potato famine in Ireland or Italians and other Southern European, other Southern Europeans, excuse me, fleeing desperate poverty could have afforded the cost of transatlantic passage from Europe to the United States? Because in real terms, in inflation adjusted terms, the cost of passage in those days was about the same or even more than it is these days, which is to say thousands of dollars. Where did they get the money? Well, some did have the means to come themselves. That's certainly true. Others relied on family members who were already here uh, to help pay the fare. Perhaps that's how some of your uh, ancestors might've come to this country. But the fact is that millions, some would say the majority, uh, came with a quote, tag on, unquote. That is, they had a label sewn into their coat or clothing that allowed an employer or labor contractor to find them on the dock at Ellis Island. In return, that immigrant whose passage was paid for by an employer or labor contractor was expected to work with that employer or labor contractor until the cost of the fare had been repaid. But here's the thing, indentured servitude was illegal. Despite the fact that this was a form of unauthorized entry, if you look at congressional hearings of the era, they're filled with testimony that suggests as many as 80% of the more than a million immigrants who were coming to the country every year uh, in the early 1900s uh, came to the United States this way. Others came as illegal stowaways aboard ships or unlawfully crossed the border from Canada as CBS news anchor Nora O'Donnell recently discovered her Irish grandfather had in 1924. Others used any means necessary to escape persecution. Just one example, as recently as the 1930s, Jared Kushner's forebears crossed multiple European borders illegally, falsely listed a sponsor on their immigration documents, 
used assumed names and lied about the, their country of origin in order to gain admission to the United States. Which leads me to my second point. Almost none of these unauthorized white European immigrants faced any consequences for their actions. Why not? Well, let me count the ways. So first, very few were ever caught because there was virtually no immigration enforcement. In fact, it wasn't until the 1970s that the federal government really had much enforcement capacity. Second, even if they were caught, few faced deportation uh, because up and through up through the 1940s, all of those who entered unlawfully were covered by statutes of limitations. And then in more recent years, there was something called the registry date, which functioned in much the same way. But even those not covered by statutes of limitations were frequently granted amnesties. And there were multiple amnesties granted through the 19, uh, early 1900s up through the 70s until 1986, which uh, uh, I discuss in my book. And up through 1976, the government had a practice where they would almost never deport anyone who had US citizen children. So as a result, significant deportations of undocumented immigrants were, you know, almost never occurred up through about the 1970s. So compare that to the situation faced by unauthorized immigrants today. Our enforcement system has been characterized by my colleagues at the Migration Policy Institute as a formidable machinery um, that uh, has more resources than all other federal law enforcement agencies combined. That is to say, bigger budgets than the FBI, the US Marshals Service, the DEA, the Secret Service, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms put together. On top of that, many state and local law enforcement agencies, and here in Texas, the National Guard, uh, also augment federal enforcement efforts. If people are caught, there is no statute of limitations uh, in current law for unauthorized entry. Uh, and there hasn't been a major legalization program or amnesty program in this country since 1986. And since 1996, uh, a law bars mainly Latino border crossers from adjusting their status to lawful status once they're here. Notably, this law does not apply to people who come through lawful means but then overstay their visas, so-called visa overstayers, who curiously are predominantly not Latino. Restrictions on public benefits followed a very similar pattern. Up through the 1970s, there were basically no restrictions, immigrant restrictions, on Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, welfare, food stamps, or any other part of the safety net. Beginning in the 1970s, starting with California under then Governor Ronald Reagan, states began imposing restrictions based on immigration, and the federal government soon followed. So that by the 1980s, essentially all safety net benefits were denied to all undocumented immigrants. In the mid-1990s, welfare reform legislation extended these restrictions to legal immigrants, although some of those have since been cut back. And in the very same period, restrictions were also added uh, or extended to include U.S. citizens and other people lawfully present in the country simply because they live in a household 
with an undocumented immigrant. Which brings me to my third point, which is the rise of this formidable enforcement machinery and restrictions on public benefits uh, were heavily motivated by race. And to prove the point, I would cite three sets of facts. The first is that immigration restrictions that began in the 1970s coincided almost exactly with the changing demographics of the immigrant stream. Prior to the 1970s, about 80% of our immigrants came from Europe. Um, following the 1970s, the principle almost, uh, the, the ratio almost completely reversed. Um, so I, I, I think changing demographics was a big part of the problem uh, or of the explanation. Uh, second, uh, consider who is caught by enforcement, who is affected by enforcement. Remember the dispac dis disparate impact theory. Enforcement has been heavily targeted towards Latinos who have never constituted more than really a bare majority of immigrants to the US, but have consistently uh, constituted about 95% of all people deported from this country and in some years more. And third, consider what proponents of tougher immigration restrictions themselves say about why restrictions are necessary. For years, for decades really, they used code words or dog whistles to explain why immigration restrictions were necessary. These days, really, they don't even pretend, right? They spout fundamentally racist ideologies like the so-called great replacement theory uh, to justify restrictions on immigration. So if the system is racist, what can people of goodwill do about it? Which brings me to my third topic, which is the prospects for immigration reform. And to be clear, what I mean by immigration reform um, is legalization of long-term undocumented people uh, in this country. And, and the reason I think uh, this is the most important feature of, of immigration reform is not just because it's a matter of racial justice, although, as I noted earlier, I think it very much advances racial equity. Uh, it isn't just that it's unhealthy for any society to, ha to have millions of people, 10 or 11 million people, who live outside the scope and protection of the law. And it isn't just that as long as you have large numbers of undocumented immigrants here, they will be heavily exploited by employers uh, which frankly lowers wages and working standards for everyone. And it's, uh, it's not just that every serious study of the subject demonstrates that legalization of undocumented people will stimulate uh, serious economic growth and increase tax revenues, which ultimately benefits everyone. It's for all these reasons that I think the one essential key feature of any immigration reform uh, is a legalization program for long-term undocumented people. But if the benefits of legalization are so plentiful, why did the nation's last major reforms happen more than three decades ago? And why is it so hard uh, to get reform passed nowadays? It's, it's failed three times in the last 20 years. And, and I think the answers are both simple and complex. I mean, one is that big bills are really hard to pass, and I think increasingly so in the current hyperpartisan environment. The second reason, which I suspect you are already thinking because of my earlier remarks, is race. 
it's not just the fact that the nature of American identity is always highly contested, but I think it's even more highly contested at a time like today when we have a significant demographic change. But it's also because there's a major well-funded anti-immigrant movement whose business it is to stymie reform. And I'm happy to talk further about that in the Q&A. And finally, there's, of course, the politics. Uh, some GOP analysts will tell you, usually privately, that Republicans simply assume that most immigrants are ultimately going to become Democratic voters. And so they view restricting immigration as essentially an existential question for the GOP. But the GOP isn't alone uh, in, in bearing some responsibility. On the other side of the aisle, there are lots of highly paid um, election consultants who tell Democratic candidates that immigration's a losing issue. Uh, Democrats shouldn't even talk about it much if they can avoid it, much less do anything about it. But there's another reason in my judgment, uh, which is that pro-immigrant advocates, in, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm certainly part of that movement, I think have made some strategic mistakes. Uh, one is that while we frequently call on GOP leaders to compromise, we relatively rarely offer our own compromises. And so, for example, we can identify all sorts of uh, modes of enforcement that we oppose, uh, some of which I talked about earlier, uh, but we rarely talk about the kind of enforcement system we could actually support. And as much as I believe our immigration system reflects systemic racism, I frankly don't believe it's smart to racialize these issues. Um, it's not smart, it's not uh, good tactics to say that anyone who opposes more immigration or who opposes legalization is racist. I, I, I believe this, or I recognize that in today's you know, woke culture that may sound like heresy, but uh, at least in my opinion, calling people racist isn't the best way to bring them around to seeing things your way. And while we've become really very skilled at describing the plight of, of undocumented people already here, think of the dreamers, um, or why people fleeing civil strife or natural disaster or persecution abroad are compelled to leave their home country, we don't often complete the other side of that equation, uh, which is why it's good for our country to accept them why accepting more immigrants or legalizing undocumented people already here is good for all Americans. So in sum, I believe that the case for reform is powerful, uh, but so is the opposition. While reform, I believe, is possible, it will be difficult, will require some compromise and tough choices, uh, probably defend, depends on some strategic shifts by pro-immigrant advocates, and of course will require some at least a few uh, willing and, and probably brave uh, GOP lawmakers. Uh, so I deeply appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak to you today. I look forward to um, hearing from Sister Norma um, and later to exploring these and, and other questions in, our, in the Q&A with uh, our moderator, Francis Valdez. Uh, Francis. Hi, Charles. Thank you so Hi, much from your talk and really have some questions I want to follow up with. Um, now we'll hear from Norma Pimentel, a sister with the Missionaries of Jesus, is Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley 
for over 12 years. She oversees the charitable arm of the Diocese of Brownsville, providing oversight of different ministries and services in the Rio Grande Valley through emergency assistance, homelessness, prevention, disaster relief, clinical counseling, pregnancy care, food programs, and the Humanitarian Respite Center. Sister Norma has been recognized by many organizations for her humanitarian work on the U.S.-Mexico border, overseeing the provision of a safe space for migrants to rest and regain strength. Most recently, Pope Francis sent her a video message encouraging her and all the volunteers to continue their work. She was also named the 2020 Time 100 list of the most influential people in the world. Sister Norma. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to speak before you. I am uh, from southern border of Texas with Mexico, the Rio Grande Valley, where we call that we are from El Valle. Living here at the border, <clears throat> excuse me, has placed me up front with the whole immigration reality that our country is presently facing for the past couple of years. And the stories that the border that I witness are many. I walk across to the bridge into Mexico almost every day. Why? Because just as <clears throat> uh, on the other side of the Rio Grande, there are thousands of families in, most, in the most heartbreaking conditions immigrants who have walked for miles and miles and and uh, as Charles just shared you know we know these stories we know this reality but it's something that many of us or many of you probably have never seen and never received the actual reality only what you hear in the news and but these families have walked so far and have been through so much from and have been attacked and abused and discarded as unimportant and uh, as almost as if they were trash, you know, easily labeled as criminals for the simple fact that they are targeted for the crimes that others do and they are treated as if they have no rights, not even to claim a space where they can be safe, where they can be just be a person, a family, a mother with her child, parents with their children who have no place to go. The truth is that immigrants are people. They are somebody's son or daughter, mother or father. They have a name. They have, a, I've met many who, for example, Chuyito, who I can vividly see him running through the camp in Mexico, you know, happy as a child, wanting to meet new friends or Miley, little girl, five years old, who, who told her mother one day that, mom, last night, I, God told me that we were not gonna suffer anymore. We're, we're actually going to the United States very soon. Or Consuelo, who out of her desperation to wanna be able to have her child be born in the United States, was not allowed to cross like anyone else through the bridge with dignity risked her life to wait until the last very moment to cross the river and right before she did, she fell to the ground and gave birth to her little girl. 
These stories and many others are true. They reaffirm that they are children of our Father who created us all with the same dignity and respect that we all deserve. Yet as immigrants, they have fled their own homeland in search of life. Through their journeys, they have encountered great pain and fear. Their dignity as a human being has been destroyed by many who find it easy to take advantage of them and destroy their lives. The stories they share of their journeys are, are, are really terrible. I encounter so many immigrants waiting on the Mexican side of the other side of the river, waiting hopeful that someday they're able to cross the United States and not be deported back to Mexico. If you were to come to the border and cross the bridge to Mexico, you will see a refugee camp the city plaza of Arenosa right now, where thousands of families are living under the hot sun in conditions that are truly heartbreaking. They can barely find space where they can lay their head to rest, where they have no assurance that they will find something to eat. With only the clothes that they have on their back, with no guarantee that they will be able to take a shower and get their bodies clean from all that they've been through. They have been through so much. Their bodies are filthy dirty, and sometimes they have to stay like that for many days until they find a way to get cleaned. They're afraid, they're frightened. Often of everyone, because they're unsure who is the person that's coming to them that will either befriend or will be somebody that is just really going to hurt them, trick them to take advantage of them, possibly kidnap them and their child, forcing them to their family to pay large amounts of money so that they can be safe. Migrants are people, human beings, that are on the move in search of not a better life, but of life itself. Unfortunately, this is happening because I feel that our society has failed them. We have failed them as a country because our policies have been a form of deterrence, of discouragement to keep them from entering the United States. For some time now, policies have been put in place as a strategy to keep people out and in many cases without consideration at all to how it will affect the human person. Children have been separated from their families as a way to send a message to others so that they not come, not decide to migrate to the United States. Because if you do, the same will happen to you. That's the message. taken otherwise, this is what will happen to you if you do come. So we see a lot of children crying, families that are put in detention facilities, families that are remaining in, are thrown back to Mexico in great numbers every single day because the border is closed and you cannot come in. in the conditions are not safe 
for them. It's not for no proper, any human being could not live in the conditions that they're living in and they're forced to live in these conditions. And many of these are the effects and the results of policies that are implemented in our country. The result is because of a failed society that refuses to seriously address the situation at the border as a reality of human life in distress and not of a problem of enforcement as it seems to be what the focus is. What I see is a reality of humanity suffering because no one has seriously looked to address the real issues, the life issues, why so many immigrants are at the border in search of safety and protection. There is an urgency to provide dignity and respect to the many immigrants that we see in those images that we are captured through the news medias. We are seeing all of these people suffering at the border. It is our shared responsibility to join in an effort to collectively create and respond in restoring the dignity of immigrants to a life and to work. We must shift the narrative of political rhetoric to one of human rights and dignity. We must stop being controlled and manipulated by political agendas. We must see our lives directly connected to our true and only purpose and mission I believe it's God's plan on earth. I find that only, only way to be is to be grounded in this divine presence, a presence that burns inside of us to do good, to care, to revolutionize goodness, kindness, tenderness, that ignites us to care, to act, to collectively respond in defense of human rights. Our brothers and sisters are in search of life. And these families, these people that are coming to our, are truly bringing great possibilities to, to help our country great benefits that we must learn to welcome and accept. Our path forward will begin to address correctly what is happening at the border with immigrants I believe the immigration process must be warm and welcoming. We must uphold the human dignity of all individuals. 
we need incentives to allow those who are coming to our country to work in the area of, of deportation. We need to the mindset, perception, a culture in ours must exist to display humanity. This is mostly created out of, of the a fear that paralyzes us, that we see hurting. Our society has been hijacked by misinformation that leaves us bereft of human compassion and love for our brothers and sisters. It is up to us to hold each other accountable, to stay connected and committed to the true divine presence of God in us, a God us to be willing to leave everything, all our personal agendas so that we can let his guidance unite us, move us forward to be creative and work for a more equitable future for all. A future that includes everyone, including migrants. Give them the human right to be safe, to be protected, to be included, to be integrated into our lives in our communities in our United States of America. It happened, only happened, saying yes, saying yes to defend dignity from this moment forward. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Sister Norma. It's really a pleasure to hear you speak. Um, when I was uh, hearing from both of you, I it was really interesting um, as right after Sister Norma started speaking, I realized how you all um, were both passionate about the same issue, talk about it so differently. And um, as was mentioned in my introduction, I run a collective impact organization in Houston, um, which means um, I intentionally bring people together that look at civic engagement and from different ways. And I think often in movements, what we do is uh, we might have a certain tactic or way of approaching an issue, and we tend to work with people that work in similar ways. And at Houston in Action, our um, core um, idea is that we actually will do better by bringing together people that might not always have the same approach, might often disagree, um, because then we can look at it more holistically. So that really came up for me in hearing both of you speak, um, how you have such different approaches of talking about the issue, but speak about it both so eloquently. And so I kind of wanted to start off by just talking about that and also maybe what you heard from each other, um, because uh, I definitely heard, you know, Charles, you making this really amazing argument um, policy argument and talking about systems and, and going through our legal history. Um, so for you, I'd like to ask, what do you, what do you think about um, the Sister Norm's approach of, of focusing on the human aspect and humanizing migrants? And what role does that approach have when we're trying to make 
policy change? Well, thank you for that question. Um, I was also struck by the contrast, although not surprised. Um, and as you noted, I, I did give a very lawyerly policy kind of, of argument. I, I think anytime we're trying to make social change, we need to speak uh, to various audiences and we need to include um, diverse uh, supporters uh, in our own ranks. Uh, and so not surprisingly, I've lived and worked uh, mainly in, in Washington, although I, I grew up here in the Rio Grande Valley like uh, Sister Norma. Um, and, you know, by virtue of our my vocation, I tend to frame arguments in certain ways. But unlike a lot of people in Washington, I um, have the privilege, I think, of having to interact very frequently with people on the other side. I think one of the big problems we have in our society um, is that kind of progressives and conservatives kind of live in their own bubbles. Um, and they rarely interact with uh, people uh, who hold different views from them. And I, one of the virtues of, of coming back to Texas frequently from Washington is um, a lot of my neighbors or a lot of my friends, a lot of the family members of are, are people who have diverse opinions. And so um, I do think we need to make some lawyerly type arguments. I think we have to make judgments about policy. Um, but but ultimately, right, we also need to speak to values and, and moral questions and spiritual questions as uh, Sister Norma did, and you know, and I suspect that's probably just as, if not more, effective uh, than the kind of traditional messaging that Washington advocates will do. Thank you. Yeah, and Sister Norma, I guess I have the same similar question to you of um, as someone who centers humanity um, and your spirituality and beliefs. Um, what role? do the policy arguments, um, the legal arguments um, have in that framework and in, in, in how we search for change for migrants? Uh, yes, you know, I think that policies uh, must be uh, uh, challenged and, and as far as how they affect human life, you know, how they contribute to human suffering. We must be, should hold our policymakers accountable for the type of policy they put together that try to respond to a reality that could contribute to not 100% uh, uh, responding correctly, humanely, to the, the reality that we're facing at the border, for example, that, that we cannot overlook the humanity aspect, the real part of people being affected in a very negative way in a very hurtful way and so um, must know that policies affect a human life you know and so there we must be careful how that is put together thank you um, something and my next question is kind of related to that um, and you know, we're all on video um, and, and I want to name right what's going on. We're living in a pandemic. So we're talking about um, 
uh, as Sister Norma said, you know, people in search of life itself. And I think that's been the theme for the last 18, 19 months, unfortunately, for a lot of people in the world. And I, I've been trying to take this moment as, as we hopefully things get better with the pandemic um, and more people are safe. How can we shift? Hopefully there's been a shift in consciousness for some people. So I wanna take us to maybe a place that doesn't exist, but I think it's important to imagine, and especially in this moment of coming out of a pandemic, reimagine uh, what life can look like. I'm not one of these people that thinks that going back to what was so-called normal is actually the best approach. So if we're in this imaginary world coming out of this pandemic where we could make the changes um, and there's a shift in consciousness and ability to do things differently, um, I'm going to ask each of you if you would say, what are the main tenets of your ideal immigration policy? And how, how did you get there? How did you actually make that policy a reality? Uh, Charles, I'll start with you. Uh, thank you for that question. I, I would just say, that, you know, I think there has been an upside to the pandemic that is worth building on from an immigration advocate's perspective. And, and I would say that more than at any other time in my lifetime, I think the role that immigrant workers have played, so-called essential workers, in, in picking our crops and bringing them, processing them and bringing them to uh, our stores uh, and then often working in the stores um, has, has changed. Um, I think that role is more appreciated um, than at least at any other time in my lifetime. So I do think as awful as the pandemic has been there is a little something to build on, a little nugget there to build on. Uh, to answer your question, um, as I said earlier, I think the centerpiece of, of our policy going forward uh, should be um, a legalization program for long-term undocumented residents. Uh, and uh, I believe there should be some sort of statute of limitations. Uh, some people would call that a rolling registry date. Um, where you know just because you've committed an offense like entering on uh illegally or overstaying your visa uh shouldn't mean that you are facing this a penalty of deportation forever uh, immigration is one of the very few offenses uh, where there's no statute of limitations and the only punishment is the maximum punishment which is deportation I, I don't think we use that frame for any other area of, of enforcement. And, and so I, I, I think it should also, uh, shouldn't be used uh, for uh, immigration enforcement. Now, to keep that sustainable, I think, and to prevent, to minimize growth of undocumented people, I think we need an expanded, expanded legal pathways uh, for, for people to come here. And I won't go into a lot of detail, but quite frankly, um, I think maybe, and this might also be something that comes positive coming out of the pandemic, a lot of the jobs that employers and businesses complaining about, uh, and certainly if there's an infrastructure bill that passes, which is going to require lots of construction workers and road workers and roofers and, and so forth, um, you know, are likely to have to require um, some expanded immigration. So 
I think we need a, a much uh, a more expanded legal immigration system that is commensurate with our with our economic needs. Um, third, I think we need a much more um, generous, but at the same time, uh, efficient uh, asylum and refugee policy. Um, you know, the, the, the Biden administration has taken some baby steps at best, uh, but I don't believe there's any reason why we shouldn't be accepting um, hundreds of thousands of refugees uh, annually through that system. That's about the same number of of Southeast Asians we accepted back uh, after the Vietnam War era. And I don't want to say it wasn't controversial controversial because it was super controversial at the time. But who now thinking back to that era would say we were wrong as a country not to accept people from uh, Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, um, you know, who've been, you know, uh, you know who, who have excelled in our society and contributed so much. Um, and with regard to enforcement at the border, I think one of the big problems is that, as Sister Norma says, we're uh, directing the, the uh, our, our system is, is misdirected. That is to say, our enforcement system today was built on a time when most undocumented uh, immigration were, was composed of single males coming from Mexico looking for work. Um, and deterrence, regardless of what you might think of it, eh, had, had a significant role in, 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 a, in controlling that migration. But, if, but as Sister Norma says, if you're fleeing for your life, deterrence, not only is it morally questionable, but it's not very effective uh, because you're not, you don't have a lot of other choices. And so I believe having um, more safe havens in the region, um, I, I said I didn't have much expertise on foreign policy and I don't, but I do think we need a Marshall Plan or the equivalent for Central America um, and other areas that are sending uh, countries. Um, and then I think we need to, uh, the ability to uh, adjudicate asylum claims much more quickly than they are now. I think one of the big concerns that you hear from, uh, I think, well-meaning and good-hearted restrictionists is uh, what you'll hear about is catch and release, right? If you're not going to pe keep people in detention after they filed uh, their initial asylum claim um, and they're, they're released, um, you know, I, I think that that affects, uh, uh, rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And I, I think there, there are things we can do uh, to address that. So those are my kind of three big rocks, um, legalization, expanded legal immigration, and really a, a completely revamped system on, on uh, asylum and, and refugees. Thank you. Sister Norma? Well, I, I actually agree almost 100%, if not totally, of what Charles just shared. I, I think he's said everything very correctly, as I agree with him. Uh, I do think that the pandemic has made us aware of how, how fragile and vulnerable we all are. We are so united in human race that needs each other, no matter who we are. Uh, we all need in order to be able to move forward, to be able to accomplish better uh, ways of living together, is to unite ourselves, to collectively work together, and and to uh, 
actually recognize the fact that the pandemic made us realize that essential uh, people that are those that need to take care of us, provide us the services that are so important to to be able to put food in the table, you know, to uh, our farmers, our people in uh, the basic services that we take sometimes for granted and how essential and important everybody is in our society. And so I think that, that as we move out of the pandemic into a, a, a new reality, that reality must be into all of this so that we could create what Charles just said, you know, and so that we can definitely, uh, and uh, I would love to uh, see or Corey across the Americas where people who need to migrate out of fear for their lives can move forward in a safe way, in a process, in a way that they can be able to understand the process and understand what they must do. And not be exposed to so many, so many, and that so that we can then follow through and and have everybody who has something to contribute to be part of this United States be of benefit and not uh, of, uh, um, an effort just to simply bag and spend so much money and resources in in simply uh, uh, enforcement and and not necessarily look at the benefits that immigrants and refugees bring to contribute to this country that is a country of immigrants, a country that that has always um, re recognized the importance of our diversity and, and what we all have to offer. And that is what I would love to see as, as we move forward in, in, um, in our society today. Thank you. Something else um, that came up for me um, in your uh, talks was um, this uh, domestic um, and international issue. Is immigration a domestic issue? Is it an international issue? Is it human rights? Is it civil rights? And those framings, um, you know, I, as, when I was really involved in immigration rights um, in my work, I felt like was one of the main reasons why we actually don't usually move forward on this issue because I, I felt that it is an international issue that until we address the fact what the U.S. does in other countries to push people here, what we've done historically um, and made people have to migrate because of the conditions we've created, um, that we can't just think about it at the border. Um, and then punish people who actually come because of the situations that we have created, um, or just in even situations that just exist in the world. So that's that's something I wanted to pose to you all, um, and what you think about that of, of how we actually um, look at this issue. I know Charles, you mean you said that you think of it. You're talking about it as a civil um, domestic issue. But um, I heard from Sister Norma, you talking about it more as an international issue. So I'd just like to hear what you all think about that, um, that thinking. And maybe Sister Norma, if you want to go first, and then Charles. Yes, of course. You know, I, I, I agree. I believe definitely that we're interconnected. All, all the Americas are, is one. And if we, we continue to just see ourselves as the United States separate from the others, 
we have to see that we're all neighbors. We're all part of one continent that needs to interact and be part of how we can help each other be okay and safe where we are. And, and so the United States has to look beyond just trying to uh, create a Texas, almost as a bed, keeps everybody away that we don't want, you know. And so we have to learn how to live together as one and, and, and be able to um, help each other to share good best practices of how the society can work for the good of everybody and, and uh, begin to address the, 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 the difficult uh, problems that we all are facing because of why people have to migrate out of the uh, corruption and and um, and all of those things that force people out of their country and and so I don't know I think that that um, um, when we continue to just see ourselves ourselves for, as a domestic just us here apart from everybody else uh, and then not take responsibility as you mentioned of our role in participation in this country's fragile and broken, forcing them to have to look for life somewhere else, uh, we will never move forward and, and truly addressing um, what we need to do to make things better. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I would note that, um, and it's briefly discussed in my book, way back when, when some of us were uh, drafting provisions of what later became the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. We did include a Commission on International Migration that was called the Asensio Commission after us, uh, Ambassador Asensio, who, who chaired the commission. And they did a bunch of hearings and a bunch of studies. Um, and unfortunately, they, they weren't acted on. Um, because I think at least some of the, those prescriptions are, are well known. Uh, although I would say they're really difficult to execute correctly. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, I would just note parenthetically before I do that, that, you know, very often when you'll, when people, and, and I've said this despite my, my lack of expertise, you know, we'll need a Marshall Plan for Central America. I, I give a lot of these kinds of talks or used to in, in person and you could see the eyes rolling in the audience, right? It's, oh boy, Marshall Plan. You know, what does that mean? It'll take forever, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, what I, I talked earlier about the demographic shift in migration um, from 80% European to basically now 80% uh, people of color from Asia, Latin America, and Africa. And, you know, that didn't happen because of enforcement. Uh, that happened because the original Marshall Plan that the United States uh, uh, assisted in funding and implementing Europe after World War II, it, 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 there was no demand or reduced demand for people to come to the United States from immigrant from, from Europe uh, because the Marshall Plan worked. People didn't need to come. They didn't fear for their safety. And, and frankly, they had a stronger, in some cases, stronger economies and stronger welfare states in Europe than they did here. Now, the exception, of course, was the Soviet Union, which, which did, through the Iron Curtain, prevent people from leaving. Um, so while people's eyes may roll, and while I would readily acknowledge uh, international development is a very fraught 
field and right you can't just uh, put uh, you know snap your fingers and, and change economies abroad it is the kind of investment that I think we'd be dumb not to pursue having said that I'll also say a couple of other things one is I think uh, Francis you're exactly right to note that we bear some responsibility for um, conditions in Central America in particular uh, Haiti as well uh, for our foreign policies which basically propped up dictators for decades that suppressed both economic growth and and um, and human rights in those countries um, having said that I would also say it's it's uh, and I certainly don't have a lot of expertise in this area it's really hard to try and put failed states back together um, right and we've had a fair number of, of, of adverse examples where we've poured trillions of dollars into nation building that haven't worked. And so it's, it's way beyond my expertise, but I think Sister Norman is right uh, that we have to help rebuild not just those economies, but those societies. You know, you can't have uh, corrupt uh, governments that are in bed with cartels um, and expect not to have um, you know, substantial migration pressures. I, I would also finally conclude um, that these pressures are not going to ease anytime soon because the other matter on the table um, is climate change, uh, which is going to vastly affect not just natural disasters, which often result in people trying to come here, but also massive changes in agriculture and, and access to water and all sorts of other things that are going to affect economies, um, particularly south of the border, um, which are going to be most affected. And and I think clearly we need a strategy to address uh, or mitigate the effects of climate change as well. Otherwise, right, the next wave of of immigrants or refugees won't be fleeing persecution, but they'll they'll be fleeing uh, famine. Well, thank you both. Um, um, along this thread, I, we have a few questions from our audience, and um, one asks, how do you feel about the U.S. immigration policy where some Afghans have the opportunity to enter into the U.S. immediately, while other people from war-torn countries like El Salvador cannot get into the U.S. at all or have to wait years? Sister Norma, you want to take that? And I, I have a response as well. Yes. Well, um, I, I, you know, I always questioned uh, the fairness of things ever since I was growing up. I remember my dad would uh, would buy my sister's shoes and I would say, why not me? You know, oh, because you don't need them, you know. And so uh, I think that when we see situations like what is happening to the Afghanistan country and having them come immediately, it makes sense that we must uh, rapidly move. And when you have a situation, you must move and act and do it right. And so I'm glad that the families that were brought to the United States it was necessary. And um, But just like that, we uh, it's unfortunate that, that our country cannot establish, as Charles mentioned, uh, an immigration reform. Why do we keep fighting it? Why is it so important not to resolve it and to establish something good that allows people to enter from other countries that are searching for an opportunity to 
to be in this country and and without an immigration reform we're not going to be ever be able to to correctly address every uh situation that we're facing and 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 so i i think that that uh it's unfortunate that our lawmakers and and people in power are not really uh fairly addressing things as they uh need to and so uh but with that said you know we should always move forward as quickly as possible when there's an emergency and a situation that we must uh, quickly uh, take care of. And I'm glad that we did what we did to take care of these families from all this that came and were received in our country. And so um, I don't know if that um, answers your question, but I, uh, it doesn't stop, it should not stop us from continuing to try to do what we need to do with all the other countries that need to also be looked at seriously and consider their situation and why they're here. You know, it is a really good question and I largely agree with uh, Sister Norma. We had a very similar situation actually back the last time we had a major Central American um, refugee crisis, which was in the 90s. Uh, and the um, it came right around the same time as the breakup of the Soviet Union uh, when the Berlin Wall came down. Um, and at that time, uh, because uh, Jews in particular, but other groups uh, in the Soviet Union had largely been protected from persecution uh, by the Soviet government, uh, when the government went away, uh, a lot of those folks uh, were at serious risk. Um, and so uh, this country, in some, in a very generous act, uh, allowed uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, Jews and, and other uh, disfavored groups from the Soviet Union, Russia, and, and elsewhere, uh, to enter the country. At the same time, we were basically denying 99% of all asylum claims from people from Central America, uh, who, if anything, probably faced uh, more serious threats of persecution. What we did then, and this is covered a bit in my book, is did what Sister Norma said, which is, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, that just because Central Americans are disfavored didn't mean we shouldn't also rescue, in that case, Russian Jews, or in the current case, Af Afghans, who've particularly right, helped our country in, in good faith. Um, but I would say one other thing, which is uh, I think we ought to engage uh, some of these organizations and efforts that are seeking to um, uh, not just rescue, but also uh, integrate uh, and resettle Afghan refugees in this country. I think we ought to try and get them to expand the conversation uh, and to point out uh, to the many people uh, who are supporting Afghan refugees who may not support us on a, on a number of other issues, to explain to them there are other people, uh, particularly Latinos fleeing Central America, who are in very similar situations uh, and who we are not granting a safe haven to, much less resettlement um, and, and support for in integration. So I, I think the questioner raises a very good question. I believe it's in inequity. I believe it's grounded in the racialization of Latinos generally in this country for a long time. Um, 
but I also think that's not a good reason to to let people who are facing persecution die. Um, and and I, I I do think we have to do what we can to save them. Yeah, what I'm hearing from both of you is this uh, false choice, uh, as though we have to make a choice between certain groups or others that the, that isn't actually how we have to think about this. Um, and so in a similar um, question about what we're learning from international experiences, do you think we can use the British Brexit experience and learn that immigrants are critical to our country? that immigration is in America's interest, um, even if we weren't going to think about or talk about the human civil rights implications. And I think um, what would be helpful too is if you had specific examples of how immigrants are um, critical and have been helpful to America. I refer to Charles to answer this question. Well, I, I think the, uh, so the answer is yes, uh, we should make that case. Uh, and yes, there are numerous examples. Uh, I mentioned essential workers and, and Sister Nodema mentioned farm workers in particular, right? But they're all around us. Truck, we have a shortage of truck drivers right now and, and right, that's stopping goods from getting to ports. Um, well, there's, there are lots of qualified immigrant truck drivers if we would only let them in. Um, you know, if they're if we're so lucky as to get an infrastructure bill passed, as I mentioned in our in my remarks, you know, who's going to do the highway traffic work? Who's going to rebuild roofs? Right? It's going to be immigrants, and in the Southwest, it's it's mainly going to be Latinos. Uh, so I do think we have to make that case. I I think that we often don't do a good enough job of reaching out to. Uh, ally, potential allies um, in business or in other fields to join with us in making the case. Um, and I think we could do a much better job uh, of doing that. Um, but yes, the, the questioner is really, you know, thinking exactly what, what I've been thinking. We have to make the case that immigration is a good thing for the country not just for the immigrants themselves. And I think too often we only talk about the immigrants and, and, and not the impact on the rest of the country. Thank you. So we just have a few more questions left um, that I wanna make sure we ask. Um, so for the viewers who are watching the program tonight, can you share some concrete actions they can take to, su to support some of the efforts you shared? Mr. Norma, would you like to go first? I, I, didn't, I didn't follow your question. Can you say that again, please? Can you share some concrete actions that people can take to support some of the efforts you shared tonight? Yes, uh, I, I, I believe that most when I speak and when I've shared is, I try to be able to uh, paint a picture of what I see, who I see, and really humanize the fact that uh, it, it is something that is always thrown to the side so that it seems like our country is uh, very much uh, controlled with numbers and, and uh, policies that um, simply um, 
push aside the, the human element, the, the human face, the, the fact that it's a person, the fact that it's a human, uh, a child, that uh, if we hear that child crying, like I hear that child crying, then, then something happens and, and we change. We realize that I have a responsibility to this child that I hear crying that is saying, Ayúdame, help me, you know, and, and that changes everything. So I think that part of what I feel that we must do is help others connect with that reality. The fact that we're dealing with humanity uh, hurting, you know, and, and a, a person, an actual person that has a name, that has a mother that, that needs help. And so uh, uh, we must be able to, uh, I invite you to come and see to be part of, to be able to make own that reality so that then you can go and speak and contribute to making the policies that the way they need to be made, that recognize and, and defend humanity, the dignity of all, you know, that you can be part of uh, speaking to legislators and helping pass an immigration reform, helping recognize the fact that the other side that the immigration doesn't only benefit the immigrants but also benefits us here in the united states and how that can happen as charles has mentioned i think that everybody's essential and important in making this happen and it's not going to happen just by speaking about it but actually doing it you know and actually uh, i first think you first gotta connect with this reality and if you actually have the opportunity to be part of and join me in walking and seeing these families go across to Reynosa and, and, and actually experience what it feels like to be in that condition, you will become a full force in making change happen. Yeah, if I could just quickly add to that, I agree completely. And, you know, in, in modern lobbying, these days, uh, you know, there's a lot of emphasis put on, you know, let's hold a demonstration and get X number of people out. Let's get X number of hits on, on mainstream media, or let's get us, um, you know, a, a video that goes viral on social media. Uh, I may be reflecting my age um, a bit, but I think old-fashioned, person-to-person, face-to-face lobbying still makes a huge difference. Lawmakers are also human beings, um, and I think they're never more affected, as Sister Norma says, if they hear a baby crying, it will affect them. And as I write in my book, very often the undocumented are the best advocates themselves uh, for their plight. So the Rothko Chapel audience is an enormously influential audience. Uh, you know you yourselves may have uh, relationships with members of Congress and right, it may be that, yeah, they're, they're hardcore anti-immigrant. Talk to them anyway. Um, you know people in, in, in businesses or in church or in your social clubs who have influence. And so if you wanna do something, I would say the one thing that would be most important would be for uh, your senators or, or member of Congress to hear from you directly that you care about these issues and, and you expect them to act in the interests of the country. Thank you. So our last question, um, and you, you both um, 
have shown, you know, your commitment to this work. And this is very difficult work. Um, I've also experienced how difficult it can be day to day, wake up and, and fight for social justice and change um, for unfortunately groups of people who, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult. Um, and as you mentioned, Sister Norma, um, we have unfortunately dehumanized a lot of migrants um, to the point where unfortunately the, um, the human connection has been lost and people don't see, see the issues as they should. Um, so how can, well, I guess it would be interesting to hear how you um, sustain your passion for social justice and activism. And, and also what is your advice for people watching for how we sustain ourselves in this, this fight? Oh, well, um, there's two, it's twofold. I think part of what I, that sustains my passion has to do with who, uh, how I connect myself to that divine presence that is guiding me and pushing me out, pushing me forward to not stay home. And actually, even though I'm tired, I'm not, I don't put myself first, but rather I recognize that I, I need to be somewhere. I need to try to be a presence, a response, something. And so, I think that 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 is one thing that that is important for me is um, maintaining that spiritual connection that lifts me and 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 um, gives me that ignites in me that fire that I need to to be able to be present in 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 every possible way, but also the families, the children, being before them and seeing them close um, holds me to always know what I need to do and and that there's much to do still and so um, that encounter is, is so important and so I, I we cannot just act out of um, our minds and our theories and our um, beliefs but rather out of that personal connection that you've and have that will move you forward to remember because I never forget that very first time that I walked into a detention facility back in, in uh, 2014, and it was packed with kids, all dirty and muddy, and their little faces, I could still see them, and I can still feel them crying and telling me, are you love me? Please get me out of here. It's, it's that experience that gets me up every morning and it has me talking right now to you. Well, that's a powerful story that I can't top, but I, I do have a little story of my own. Uh, people wonder why of uh, me, a Japanese American, um, although I did grow up here in the Rio Grande Valley, which is predominantly Latino, um, has worked for a Latino civil rights organization for decades. And um, I also have a story. Um, which is, uh, I think, in the early 1990s, um, a few years after I had worked on uh, the last immigration bill that, that did legalize three million people. I can't remember why I was going up to the hill, um, but 
but I, I in, in the cab ride back, I remember thinking, you know, it's just been a tough day. What we had been trying to accomplish was clearly not going to happen. And so as we're, I'm getting in the, as I get in the cab and I'm, they're driving me back to my office. In those days, there were lots of uh, Ethiopian um, cab drivers in Washington. Uh, so this fellow was talking to me, oh, where do you work? What do you do? And I was kind of giving him, you know, short answers. Well, you know, I work in government relations. Oh, where? Well, I work on civil rights. Oh, what organization? And I was kind of putting him off. So as we're driving up to our office, um, uh, he finally got me to say, well, I work at the National Council of Larasa, and here's our office right here. And he jammed on the brakes and he turned around and he said, I want to shake your hand because I legalized under the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And I know you guys did a lot of work on that. So, you know, immediately all the trials and tribulations of whatever I had been trying to do and failed uh, on the Hill kind of disappeared. And, you know, that's the kind of thing uh, in small ways that has kept me going. Um, I, I do think we need to have our successes uh, to keep going. Well, thank you both for opening your hearts and minds to us and to me. And it's been truly an honor to share space with you. And although we weren't um, physically together, I could feel your good energy and all the work that you're doing that you have done. And it, you just inspired me to, <laughs> to keep going and continue um, the fight. And I just want to also say that you make me really proud to be a Texan. And I think that us Texans have to take credit because a lot of people have a view of what Texans look like and think. And especially both of you being from the Valley, um, I'm just, it's just incredible. And the, and, the, and the fact that you are very different, but you your work and your approach complements each other and it makes a more holistic um, approach. And so very grateful for both of you and, and how you do your work um, because that's what's going to help this movement um, look at all the things that we need to look at. So thank you both very much. Um, and again, it was an honor to share space with you. And Ashley will come back to close us out. Thank you, Charles, Sister Norma, and Francis for being here tonight and engaging in this important conversation. And thanks to each of you for joining us virtually and taking time out of your evening to learn more about this topic and how you can get involved. This program is being recorded and will be available for viewing on both our website and Vimeo page. We invite you to share it with your family, friends, and colleagues. I'd also like to thank everyone who helped plan, participate, and financially support today's program and its development. This series will culminate with a virtual symposium March 31st and April 1st in 2022. For more information about that event and all of our other upcoming programs, we invite you to please visit us at rothcochapel.org. Thank you again and have a wonderful evening.
terrific.